you got to make a decision if you're going to work for other people the rest of your life and make them tens of millions or you're going to work for yourself and make millions and what holds people back is they worry about delivery they think well, i could sell for other companies but how am i going to close myself but that's a self-image problem taking it all the way back because if you are the product if the product is just a michael inc how is that ever going to be less than other companies so it's really about believing in yourself and sticking your neck out there the two points of advice I'd give that come from master coach Brian Franklin, who is my CEO. He coached Reed Hoffman and he has mm. lifetime value of his clients for two to five years. Number one, the more enigmatic, the higher the fee. The other one is hold the paradox. But I'll say this, if you are an expert at something and you're masterful at something and you can look someone in the eye and you know something that they don't know, you can transfer money. Like you can get paid very well as a consultant. You just have to know that and believe that. Today's interview is with Justin Michael, who's an executive coach, a four-time best-selling author, a co-founder, and the global authority on outbound prospecting. Compared to the other interviews, this episode may be a bit shorter, but by no means is it shallow. We're diving deep into the intriguing link between self-image and income, the influence of subconscious programming, the hedonic treadmill, and the pivotal role of identity in driving success, and much more. And toward the end of the discussion, Justin shares some valuable advice to other B2B sales coaches and consultants. He reflects on his coaching journey and talks about the transformative power of genuine human connections in the world of sales. I want to start off with a recent post that you put out. I thought it'd uh, be a good way to shift our, our start here. And I won't read the whole post, but I'll ask you to elaborate a little bit. Uh, and it was a poll that you put out. Believe it or not, your self-image is directly correlated to your income. It was a poll that you had over 100 votes on, 82% of people said yes, that the subconscious mind determines your exact income. Talk to me about this post and what your point was with that. Yeah, so it's very interesting because I started in the realm of helping people acquire uh, tactics and skills for sales. And I started reading into a lot of different sources about um, the hedonic treadmill and hedonic adaptation. And the treadmill is, you know, the couple in Manhattan that makes a million a year, but they owe 1.3 million and then 1.5 million owes two. And so it's the tendency from the word hedonism to live beyond our means, mm -hmm. amassing credit card debt and materialism. Mm -hmm. Now, hedonic adaptation doesn't get as much fanfare, but this is more about the comfort zone. So it's the reason that lottery winners, 70% of them, go bankrupt. And so Gay Hendricks calls this the upper limit problem. You hear Dr. Benjamin Hardy talking about it, is that when you hit a certain income level and you go past it, your psyche or your ego uh, tends to make you self-sabotage that amount. So I found it very wild that you could take a person making 100K, 150K, 200K, 50K, train them in all the best techniques and get them better and better at the skills and then they would just find a way <laughs> to save it all up <laughs> or make it go down. And the best examples, like people that have that same crazy significant other that just keep showing mm -hmm. up, they're all crazy. They say, well, there's something going on inside. So neuroscience tells us that about 5% of our waking reality uh, we're conscious of, and the other 95% is buried. And a lot of that is trauma before the age of seven. So yes, there is an exact income level that we have programmed ourselves to hit. And there's a lot that goes into manifestation. So I'm all about being the identity of the human. If you shift your identity, um, what you think and what you do will change. And right. most of us have 70,000 thoughts a day. 
We do, billionaires do, Michael Jordan does, Mark Cuban does. And they say and 85% of those are negative. I, yeah. I, I saw. Mm -hmm. Mainly negative and main, mainly mm -hmm. repetition of the last day. So mm. there's a wide variety of authors from Byron Katie to Eckhart Tolle to Wayne Dyer. But basically all those negative thoughts aren't making you tougher and beating on yourself isn't <laughs> turning you into Rocky. It's causing a lot of negative internal psychology and that negative self-talk will manifest into reality, even if it's just an attitude. Um, so there's been a lot of motivational speakers that have hit the thinkingness problem. I'm going to do a seven-figure deal. I can do the seven-figure deal, right? But who are you being internally? Do you believe that you can close that? Do you feel worthy of that kind of commission? Do you feel worthy to speak to C-levels? I'm really working with people on a deep psychological level. How do you shift your subconscious? There's a lot of auto-suggestion, but it happens when the brain is in an alpha or theta state, but the brain typically operates in beta. When I'm you're glad you said that. Mm -hmm. So mainly we're caffeinated listening to 440 hertz music, which is turning off the right hemisphere in our creativity. Not saying it's wrong. The beta <laughs> I'm right there with you. I didn't show my coffee focus. mug for those that are listening. Yeah, no, you should, you should have your caffeine when you're trying to, you know, crush a list. Uh, learn really fast, retain. It's it's a great way to provoke the brain. But Salvador Dali used to sleep, he used to nap on a metal plate and he would have a key in his hand. Mm -hmm. And if it clinked, he'd wake up. So I've developed these musification, music, meditation and manifestation processes for salespeople because I couldn't meditate. <laughs> and so I couldn't get my head. I had too many thoughts, you know, right. so I came it, off the caffeine off. like like mm -hmm. David Goggins. And then I started playing these cymatically tuned solfeggio frequencies like 432 hertz and 528 hertz. Right. And whether you believe in uh, this woo-woo stuff. Uh, That's not woo-woo stuff at all. I, I I have a blog post on my site where uh, when I went for my second certification for Salesforce, you know, deep in the weeds on their content and trying to study this stuff and understand it well. And I would turn these, you know, get to my Spotify, turn these alpha, you know, frequencies on, or, you know, I'm probably going to butcher the, the the terminology of it, but I would literally, as I'm studying, I would have that going on in the background purposely for uh, what you're saying. I mean, I probably picked it up on YouTube or something, but uh, it seemed to work for me. Really powerful. I have a client that has a brain injury that got in a car accident and he's been able to tune elements of the nine solfeggio frequencies. Um, and there's also some that are binaural beats that form a right. third frequency. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And some of those are beta and some are theta and alpha. But essentially, the human mind, when it's between full subconsciousness and alertness, it's a special creativity. Mm. Uh, like Quentin Tar Tarantino used to write scripts floating in his pool. <laughs> and Einstein, uh, you know, would go into these Zen moments. Edison would take naps, apparently would fish without bait so people would leave him alone. So just giving your your brain that relaxation and that floating period, neuroscientists have talked about. So then Very if good. you're mm -hmm. quoting Sid Banks and the three principles, if you're not your thoughts and you're not your mind and you're not your bo body, depending on any religion or philosophy you have, what are you? You're the consciousness behind all of that. And when you see the thoughts going by and you let them go, well, then there's a certain stillness, right? And power is not in the grind and the willpower. It's in the complete stillness of mind. And that's like a connection to oneness. And that's where you can tell yourself, I am great and I am successful and I can close the deal and I can earn this amount. And uh, I, I think I was just watching a Tony Robbins documentary where he just used to run and he was just, I'm unstoppable over and over and over and over again, trying to right. program himself. Program his subconscious, yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's hip, hypnosis you can do and NLP and there's so many good resources, but to me, I just find that listening to music and visualization has been, uh, has many powerful benefits from closing sales to well-being. So, well, yeah, you mentioned visualization. So I'm, I'm going to change gears on you because I know we always have so much time, but I want to, since you mentioned visualization, tell me or tell the audience what then selling would be if you were to come out with this uh program you've <laughs> talked about it in interviews in your book uh but if you were to write a new book called Venn selling or had a methodology what how would you kind of distill that down yeah so i started using venn diagrams because there was a cro who presented this kind of mba sketch of where our mobile marketing stack fit in and i sent it to the chief digital officer of mcdonald's and set a meeting on the first try which was amazing Beautiful. Um, so sending visuals triggers the brain 60,000 times faster than words. So what I'm working on a lot now is fusing elements of the law of attraction with mm -hmm. visualization, meditation, and music, and then fusing that with my vast library of techniques and strategies of the Justin Michael method, of which Venn selling is a part. And the thing about the law of attraction is if you only want it for yourself, there's a curse. So you have to want it for other people. It has to be service oriented and other oriented right. and you have to take action. And so I've kind of cultivated service-based prospecting throughout the books because you have the go-giver by Bob Berg, you have Zig Ziglar, you know, help enough people get what they want. You'll get what you want. Dale Carnegie, there's a lot of great stuff written, but essentially when you kill the profit motive and you contact people and your intent is truly to help transform their lives and business, they show up differently because you show up differently. So that sounds great, but when you have a, a leader and a quota and your org is behind the number, I mean, pressure kicks in and is it still, is it still realistic to maintain that approach when, I mean, wouldn't naturally a salesperson kind of eke into bad habits of, you know, desperation and all the high pressure selling tactics and whatnot, because I think we would love to be in that state, but uh, does it always um, allow for us to do that with the pressure that's around us. Yeah. So it's like the rudder of a plane and consistently course correcting and getting yourself back on track. But you have to understand that you need to slow down to speed up and to scale, you need to do the unscalable. So if you're feeling extreme anxiety and pressure to hit numbers in, in your quota, maybe rather than pounding of giant coffee yeah. and hit phones, maybe get some sleep, take a nap. I love that. Calm your body down. Eat. Get well, a workout in. Right. Get a workout in. Just clear right. your mind. And from that place of mental clarity and stability and calmness, you'll show up better. Because what you're going with your tonality and your physiology is a trusted advisor modality. And you don't sound like a trusted advisor running around with your hair on fire, sounding like <laughs> yeah. you're plugged into a light socket. Please, 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 please take this meeting. Please, please, please take yeah. a meeting. <laughs> and, and the greatest issue with ChatGPT and OpenAI is the neediness and creepiness factor because OpenAI, all mm. the chat GPT sounds like this. Tarek, congratulations on your funding. Do you want to look at my CRM? Like it's just so clingy and happy and praising. So, well, I, I'm going to touch on that because in the book, you said you mentioned personalization is the wrong North Star because it risks lowering your status. And then you go into the, the contrast of hyper personalization. So, what you just talked about is exactly that that personalization that really lands nowhere but it's the hyper personal take us down that path real quick yeah so this all comes down to frames and a lot of this work was pioneered by 
Orrin Claff, and I think it does come from Sandler in some ways too, but whoever has the strongest frame wins. Now, if your frames equal the prospect, it's like two magnets hitting, right? Mm. Is it So value framing? Is that what you mean by frames? frame is like, it's like where you see yourself, right? Because Okay. you might be calling on a prospect that makes a million dollars a year, but you're an expert in right the lamp stack or hypervisors or kubernetes or marketing automation or whatever technologies and in that moment you're definitely equal but you're probably above so you can't do anything to diminish yourself or lower your status or lower your value um, that's the element of the challenger sale that links if you meet a c-level and you're casual it shows tremendous confidence if i call a ceo i'm not going to say you know Hey, Mrs. Roberts, I'm not going to sound like uh, the IRS, right? Like, Yeah, you don't you don't want to sound submissive when you call in. I, equal no. business stature is the term that I always try to Yeah, so uh, go like back to. Mm -hmm. that's a that's a great one from Sandler. Where I take it is everything that I do from an outbound and prospecting perspective is anchored in a strong frame and not lowering status. So I don't use permission-based openers and it drives people crazy. It's controversial. So I don't say, did I catch you at a bad time? Right, right, And right. I get 30 seconds of your time. Is this a good Route time? right, right into route. <laughs> How, how yeah. have you been? You know, there's text is linguistics, which is heuristics, which is the meta framework. Our words are images. Our words, I say coffee, you think Starbucks. Right. I say ultimate driving machine, you see a BMW, right? So the only intentionality for a call has been this. I'm going to try to get Derek to buy something since 1876, Alexander Graham Bell. But then I got sneaky in the 90s, Brian Tracy, and I go, I'm going to convince Derek to meet with me. I'm going to take his time, not his money, either Tuesday or Thursday, 15 or 30 minutes. So I'm the first person in 100 years to say route. Right now, Luke Ruffing plugged that in at Panadoc, became the best rep ever. Uh, Jed Marley's used a lot of cool people. Um, so the thing is you call with the intention of figuring out who's the appropriate person who's in charge of this thing. And it sends another signal because prospects smell fear. They hear your intention, not your words or tone. They can literally sense the energy. So when I call you, it's important that you feel that I don't want you to buy from me. It's the good Samaritan. I'm lost in central park, which way I'm to indifferent to, grand central to this, station. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's the route piece when you're opening it. The one thing, uh, and for those that aren't familiar with route, ruin, multiply, uh, this is a, a a methodology that Justin has developed. Um, three parts, obviously. The one that I don't understand, and I understand the methodology, but the label is ruin. Why did you label it ruin? I mean, if you're peeling back a layer of the the onion, why did you call it ruin? It, it, it just it didn't sit well. Well, I see parallels in all the reading, but I really love Scott Lee's book, Addicted to the Process. And Yeah. he talked about the addiction model, which means if a human being doesn't say, yes, I have the problem, you'll never sell them. So it's not actually desire to do a transaction of any size. It's them saying, yes, our CRM's messed up. Yes, I need sales coaching. So they have to kind of mea culpa admit to their issue, right? So the problem is we're in a painless society. I can call you up and say, Derek, you happy with your podcast system? Yeah. What if you get 100x it? You're like, meh. But I've got this technology. Meh, send info. No one wants anything. There's so many solutions and so many vendors that it's pain-free. So what I do is I get them to talk about what's in the stack that's working. And I found through many A-B tests that the reverse psychology is to praise them 
like validate their vendor choice. So they say, we're with Salesforce. I go, oh, that's great. How's that working out for you? Very nonchalant. And I just mm -hmm. validate them. And that throws a real spanner in the works because they're used to every seller having the kill sheets and the immediate <laughs> right. rebuttal. They want to come right in and say, well, that sounds good, but another client yeah. found and felt and fired. all that stuff. Feel, felt, found. So I don't do any of that. Right. Even if they say, you know, we don't use a CRM. And I say, oh, that's interesting. Awesome. <laughs> interesting choice. Why'd you go that way? I validate and encourage like a trusted advisor. So it's called ruin because once they start talking about, yeah, um, we've had Acme for a few years. I didn't make the decision. Oh, when did you install? Why did you install it? We were trying to figure out our data integration. But the customer service is kind of clunky. And then what I do is I find sparks of issues pain, irritation, and then I just peel the onion there. So I'm able to kind of get to the things like pain funnels, things like peeling an onion, just traditional right. second order value spin questions. And I can get prospects that are closed off to open up because all I'm doing on a cold call is I'm building trust um, and I'm lowering the friction. I love that. And then at that moment, you ask them to not change anything that they're doing and and only multiply with putting you in alongside whatever they're currently doing, uh, which is another frictionless approach. And the reason is the average enterprise has 91 solutions in the stack and the SaaS contracts they have, even small companies are two, three, four years. So the idea of ripping out a SaaS contract is just like a fate worse than death, right? So what you're missing though is in the ruin step when I interview them about their tech stack or the status quo, and I start peeling the onion, they get them talking. This can go on from two to five minutes, even 10 minutes. And I'm waiting for this magical thing I found called the polarity shift. And Google calls it ZMOT, zero moment of truth. You're running, maybe you're athletic, you scuff your Adidas and you go, ah, it's time for new shoes. You go to Google, you put Adidas, there's Zappos, boom, in a nanosecond, intent. So that intent signal, trillions in the economy. So what I'm doing is like prospects, love to buy, they hate to be sold. So if you can reduce the friction and you can actively listen and they start talking to you, they will suddenly be like, oh wait, who are you? Because when you interrupt someone cold, it triggers the fight or flight and the amygdala, like the fear base. And they're usually just multitasking you. Like, what is this? What are you selling me? And so in my technique, you spotlight the prospect, they talk first, and then you wait for the polarity shift. So when I do demos of this, like one minute, three minutes, five minutes, it's going on and on. And there, people are like, Justin, like, why, what the heck is this call? And then you hear this, wait, do you do that? And it flips. And then they'll say something like, hey, um, I didn't even want to talk to you. I hate salespeople, but you're like a friend. You're different. Can I set a call with you? Do you want my Calendly? Can I bring my Switches boss? everything. I love that. And it, and it just, and the yeah. way I found it actually is I was involved in long-term enterprise sales. I was a VP of sales, a GM, a VP of ops. Mm -hmm. I was in 13 startups. I just turned 44. So I'd been grinding on the system. I was 21 and I fell into it. And so I do a three-year deal, but I would do the deal at one mobile company and two companies later, <laughs> I would do, I would close the deal because that's how long the sales cycle was. And I would find that that person would come back and buy into me as a seller and say things like, we need the paperwork. We need to get the MSA filled out. Here's our, you know, Ariba procurement system. So it was like to me, like a Jeep with its back tires and quicksand and the dirt and it's not catching. Because ultimately sellers, they just push and push and push aggressively to close the deal and that blows up right. dead on arrival, 
right, in a CSM. So my whole technique is based on creating the desire in the prospect, whether that's a DM flow, which I call the fourth frame, which is in Yeah, the book. love that part. Honestly, that was probably my Yeah. favorite part of the book. Yeah, that technique alone, I used to charge $10,000 to learn. Essentially, I have 30,000 capped on LinkedIn and something like, I don't know, 54,000 followers. Fifty-four. And I thought, how come I'm not just getting leads out of LinkedIn? And no matter what kind of emails I tested, it didn't work. And then I realized, wow, LinkedIn is a chat platform and I need to create a choreography for DM flows. So I created this pattern that I tested. It's called the fourth frame and you can't do it with automation. because it has dust and scratches and you just chat and grow rich. I've, I've pulled thousands of meetings out of LinkedIn with this thing and it's been super effective. I taught Luke Shalom this one technique. He made $250,000 off this one chapter in the book. True story. I believe it. I, I probably my most highlighted section of the book uh, is that, and you mentioned something about uh, scaling the unscalable because in the fourth frame, you talk about, you actually mentioned uh, your advice to other consultants and being that this is the sales consultant podcast. I want to shift to understand your, your advice to other coaches and consultants in the space. You mentioned that, uh, Your business in B2B coaching, 100% customized, one person at a time. Um, and for B2B coaches or consultants out there, like what advice would you give them about your, when you think about your business model, the way you set yourself up, what advice would you give someone who might be starting out in that same lane? Yeah, so I typically don't work with anyone for less than 15 grand, you know, Mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I basically run a super wide funnel, 99% of my content is free, or they buy my book. Um, every sale is created within a conversation. And uh, I'll quote, you know, Lipfin and Chandler for that quote, but the way I've interpreted it is that nobody's having conversations on LinkedIn. So when I do a post, I'll mine the post and I'll interact with people. Um, slow down, you know, talk to one person at a time. And I, I got this from Alan Weiss. The more you invest upfront in building the relationship in that initial chat and Zoom call, the higher the fee later. So people are rushing, 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 rushing to the discovery call. Here's my advice to consultants. Nobody's buying co consulting. <laughs> Nobody's buying coaching. right? You got to focus on the goal. So in book two, JMM 2.0, I have a seven-step closing framework. These are my magnum opus. This is like, you know, my silo gift <laughs> to sellers after reading 200 books and, you know, being in the field for 20 years. So um, it's not simple. Read the book and apply the fourth frame and you'll see your client acquisition explode. Shameless plug. I can help you figure it out too, if you want. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Last question. Take us back to the inflection point that uh, when when you stopped working W2 full time, working for someone else in a traditional model and became, uh, you know, you know, your own boss, if you will, stepped out and started doing coaching full time. I'm sure there's probably some overlap maybe there where you were moonlighting at some point. But uh, talk about the inflection point where you said, you know what, this is the point where I'm not going back. I'm at you know, burning the boats and I'm all in on my coaching business. Yeah. I turned 40 and I thought, this is it. You know, I, I was a top VP of sales. I was doing like, you know, half a million OTE at a good job. Loved what I did. I was very well known. I did like 3 million on a $1.2 million number on 25K ACV. So it felt good. I cut the cord. Um, 
my first three months, I did like 9K, but month four, I did 100K in one day. And month nine, I did 200K in one day. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I just realized that that I could do this thing. Um, and in some cases, I was kind of made to be a consultant. <laughs> so I just found that I was able to scale it up really fast. And I became a California S Corp. And then I also have a C Corp with a co-founder. Um, you got to make a decision if you're going to work for other people the rest of your life and make them tens of millions, or you're going to work for yourself and make millions. And what holds people back is they worry about delivery. They think, well, I could sell for other companies, but how am I going to close myself? But that's a self-image problem, taking it all the way back, because if you are the product, if the product is just a Michael Inc., <laughs> how is that ever going to be less than other companies? So it's really about believing in yourself and sticking your neck out there. The two points of advice I'd give that come from master coach, Brian Franklin, who was my CEO, he coached Reed Hoffman and he has mm -hmm. a lifetime value of his clients for two to five years. You should interview him. Brian with I'd a Y, to. Brian Franklin. Number one, the more enigmatic, the higher the fee. And uh, the other one is hold the paradox. But I'll say this, if you are an expert at something and you're masterful at something, and you can look someone in the eye and you know something that they don't know, you can transfer money. Like you can get paid very well as a consultant. You just have to know that and believe that. So the biggest journey, the cave that I feared to enter was having enough self-belief uh, to be able to crack through all the rejection. And uh, that's what I help people do really. Yeah, it's been a crazy ride the last four years. I've gone on to advise over 200 companies. I worked with a thousand different individuals, made more money than I ever made uh, software sales. And, you know, Ian Poniak sent me this book, Go-Giver by Bob Berg. And I read that. And it always been in like pay it forward. And the minute I just killed the profit motive, when I take calls, discovery calls or are we fit calls, I look the person in the eye and I think, I will never close you. This is a game by Melissa Ford. And I kill that last little drop of blood for the great white shark. And I just serve. I just, how can I change this person's life? Give a breakthrough. How can I give my all to this one human being? Anything I can see, any shortcut, any advice, it's been powerful. So one by one, I built this up through results. I've had clients uh, legitimately 4X, 5X their income, 500K a year, 750 million a year. I've had people leave uh, you know, videos with tears in their eyes that I transformed their lives. So I'm in the transformation business. And, uh, you are. You yeah, are. I, feel, I feel really blessed and privileged and I'm just getting started, you know? Well, I think uh, for me personally, uh, 1.0, just a Michael 1.0 is definitely help sales superpowers. Something that I've already started applying some of the stuff on the, in the fourth frame myself. I'm halfway through just a Michael 2.0. And for those that haven't read Tech Powered Sales, make sure you go and get that as well. But I would say, surprisingly, after meeting you for the first time here on our podcast interview, I anticipated a highly technical which you are very well known you i mean all your videos are cyborg-esque and these sorts of things you 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 bridge the technical with the humane really really well but sitting with you and talking with you it's very authentic it's very genuine it's very humane uh, it, it doesn't come from the a very uh rigid technical cold perspective you you're a Good guy, man. And I really appreciate you taking the time out to sit with me and educate the audience. 
I'm grateful. It's It's been a privilege. Yeah, at a certain point, you know, um, the exoskeleton has to fall away and it's a human to human moment, right? It's your ability to choose fear or love and actually decide if you're going to help that person and transform their business. I, I met a rep at Salesforce when I worked there named Tom Radel, and he'd been an NFL football player. I asked him his favorite books. He sat me down in a blizzard in Chicago. He said, Justin, you think too much. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, you know how I do the biggest deals at Salesforce? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I look the prospect in the eye and I say, we are going to transform your business. And I was like, stunned. <laughs> I put that somewhere in the book. It's just so profound because that yes. really is, that's why, that's what we're all here to do. And that's, that's my joy. So I'm very grateful to be perceived that way. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, it would go a long way if you were to write a short review on the listening app of your choice.